we've been studying and walking our way through the I am statements of Jesus. And so today, I'm going to be talking about the statement where Jesus very emphatically said, I am the good shepherd. But it's difficult sometimes for us as we read through the scriptures to be able to really feel the richness of the passage. You know, we read ink on paper, and it's interesting for us because it's just, it's a story sometimes that lacks emotion. But what I hope I can do today is to unpackage this in a way to help you grasp this incredible storyline. So I'm going to ask you, if you're willing, to step into the story with me, to engage your imagination, and allow me to kind of give you the context of this incredible statement, I am the good shepherd. We have to travel back in time some 2,000 years and imagine that we were living as a Jewish person at the time of the Roman occupation. This was a difficult season in the history of Israel, not a pleasant one. The Romans were known for their brutality. Uh, they were known to come in as occupiers of, of any nation and every nation in which they could overrun. And then they, they, would, they would impose their political will upon that place. At the same time, you have that dynamic. You also have the Jewish religious leaders who had become, can I say, compromised somewhat. They had become politicized in the way they approached the people, the people of Israel themselves. So we're going to tell the story, at least the first portion of my message as a narrative. I'm going to invite you to step into the story with me. We're going to tell it through the eyes of a shepherd boy. So this is a shepherd's story. It was many years ago. I was much younger then. But I'll never forget the moment when I met, for the very first time, the true shepherd of Israel. He stood that day, just before the Feast of Dedication. You would call it the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah. And he announced to the crowd, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A shock wave ran through the crowd that day. Isn't this what the ancient prophets told us the Messiah would say? Because the prophet Micah, centuries before, had said, one would arise, the Messiah would arise and he would shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. But I'm getting ahead of myself. As I said, I was just a lad in those days, learning the shepherding trade from my father, who learned it from his father, who learned it from his father before him. We were a family of shepherds, simple people, but we served and supplied lambs for the festivals that happened in Jerusalem on multiple occasions. That day, we were grazing our sheep in the fields outside of Jerusalem, near Bethlehem, actually. And we were hoping, perhaps, to market some of our lambs to the people coming for the Festival of Lights, the Festival of the Dedication of the Temple. But this year was different. There was this unusual energy, this buzz that went through the crowd. The rumor was that Jesus, the Nazarene, was coming to the festival, and people were buzzed, uh, buzzed with, with, this, with this word. They, we had heard stories of his riveting parables, the authority in which he spoke and, and presented his teaching to the crowds. We heard about the throngs of people that would amass anywhere that he went. And of course, the miracles, the incredible miracles. People celebrated. Well, most people celebrated. Not the religious leaders. They responded with scorn and with mockery. They told the people that he was a false prophet. They should stay away from him. Matter of fact, it was even told to some of the people, if they followed this Jesus the Nazarene, they would be excommunicated from the synagogues. They were, they 
tried to vilify this Jesus Nazarene on every moment. They, of course, told us that Jesus had said, I saw Abraham, I knew Abraham before Abraham was. And in other cases, they said that Jesus said that he was the Son of God. The response of the religious leaders was, heresy, that's crazy, you're too young. No mortal man could possibly have been alive to see Abraham. No one could make such claims. You must be possessed by demons. They made it very clear that they would never believe or follow the Nazarene. They would never accept his claims. They tried to discourage everyone else from following him. All this controversy seems so confusing to me. I, of course, was just a lad, but it seemed that the evidence was quite compelling. Well, his miracles alone, well, they were miraculous. How do you define the miraculous? You see, everywhere that Jesus went in those days, he drew a crowd and a controversy. They, everyone who heard him speak would be faced with a decision, do you accept him or will you reject him? Not just his teaching, but himself, the one who called himself the good shepherd. But let me tell you about the day that it happened. It was incredible. Jesus came into the village that day. I saw it with my own eyes. And a man who was well-known in the community, he had been a beggar for his entire life. He had been born blind. And as the disciples and Jesus walked by this man begging on the side of the road, the disciples turned to Jesus and they said, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Of course, you see, we believed in those days that sickness and disease were caused by sin. So therefore, someone must be to blame. Someone's sin caused this man to be blind. But here's the dynamic. Here's the, the, the dilemma that they were faced with. Was it the man who sinned? He was born blind. That meant he would have had to sin in the womb. And, and that's just not possible. Was it the parents that sinned? Well, if it was the parents that sinned, it was not just that the son would pay for the consequences of his parents' sin. So here's the dilemma. Here's the question that the, the, the disciples posed to Jesus. Who sinned, the man or his parents? And Jesus' answer shocked all of us. Jesus said, no one sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed through his life. That the work of God might be displayed through his life. What a remarkable thought. That God's glory... His wonderful work could be displayed through man's suffering and through man's brokenness. And we see it best displayed later in the story when the, the Son of Man, the Good Shepherd himself, suffered and was broken so that we could know wholeness, so the glory of God could be displayed through our lives. You know, let me just step ahead in the story and say that many Christ followers that came through the generations have understood how they could see the glory of God displayed through their lives personally when they would bring their brokenness to the Good Shepherd and have him touch their lives. But what happened next in the story, if I can step back into the story, it's so hard to believe that I, I struggle even telling it because it seems so unreal. In that moment, Jesus steps up to the blind man and he does something very unusual, something very unkosher for a Jew to do. He spits into the ground. And then, and taking some of the dust of the earth and his spittle, and he made a poultice. Can you imagine that? So on, kuth, 
But this is what the good shepherd did. And he took that, that poultice, that clay, that wet clay, and he put it on the very eyes of the blind man. Can you imagine that? And the people were horrified. Why would Jesus, was this an insult? Was, or was this an opportunity to bring healing to a blind man? Now, let me digress. Ah, when I saw this happen as a young lad, my thought was, I remember another story when God took the dust of the earth and he formed it into the shape of a man, and he breathed his life into that man. That, that man's name was Adam, the very first man. And the scripture says that God took the dust of the earth. Adam means red earth. And God breathed his ra, his breath, into man, and the man came alive. Was it possible that that day, that the creator himself, the creator who was Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit, the one who was present at the beginning in creation, maybe in that moment took some of that very same dust of the earth and using his spittle, recreated the eyes of a blind man. If he could create an earth and all the people and create Adam, maybe he could recreate sight. Of course, what happened next was amazing. After Jesus took and made this poultice and put it on the blind man's eyes, he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, Siloam wasn't close it was quite a little journey across town. The Pool of Siloam was made by Hezekiah the king as a place, a water reservoir for the people. And so this man with mud on his eyes walked across town. Can you imagine that? People followed because they were curious to see what would happen next. The man goes and he washes in the pool. And he was healed. Miraculously. It was incredible. John the evangelist, the writer of the gospel, said this very simply. He went... He washed, and he came home seeing. He came home seeing. It was amazing. The crowds were cheering. This was an incredible miracle that was verified by the hundreds and hundreds of local people that knew this man. He had been born blind. It was a celebration all over town. The beggar, the blind man, was healed. And certainly, though the crowds cheered, the religious leaders challenged it. They said, this can't be a miracle. Obviously, young man, you were not born blind. Obviously, you were faking for all those years. Obviously, this is not a miracle. Obviously, you, in some ways, have, have, have in some form or another, they stated this, this man who had been born blind had faked all this? Really? How absurd. How ridiculous were these, those arguments. Of course, the people didn't listen to the scribes and Pharisees. But the problem was that the scribes and Pharisees had a, had a huge problem now because they had taught in all the synagogues, they had taught in the temple that the prophet Isaiah gave a sign of what the Messiah would do, how he would come, the things he would accomplish while he was here in his earthly ministry. And one of the signs of the Messiah is that the Messiah would bring sight to blind eyes, but not just any eye that was blind, because they believed specifically the Messiah would bring sight to eyes which had never seen. They taught that perhaps a prophet, or perhaps a good man, or a godly man could restore sight to a person who had lost his sight. In other words, someone who had been born seeing, but through injury or calamity had lost their sight. Maybe a prophet could restore that sight. But only the Messiah could teach an eye that had never seen. Only the Messiah could give sight to an eye that had never seen. This was the sign of the Messiah. He would teach a blind eye that had never seen to see for the first time. The proof, the proof stood right before us. 
This was the Messiah sign. This was the sign that we had been looking for. This blind man gave testimony to everyone gathered of this miraculous sign. He had grown up in the community. Jesus has personally picked a man who had been born blind to demonstrate not only the validity of his statements, I am the good shepherd, I come to shepherd my sheep Israel, but also that he was the promised Messiah. And yet the leaders wouldn't believe it. To them, Jesus that day gave some very troubling words. He said this, I have come into the world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Of course, the Pharisees were hostile. Are you kidding us? Are you calling us blind? How dare you? Who do you think you are, they said. You see, I actually believe that uh, as a shepherd boy, though I could not understand the resistance then or now, I believe it's possible that there is no greater blindness than the blindness that's caused by failure to see the truth when it's standing right in front of you. I think our whole nation in those days was blind. I think the nations of the world today are blind because the truth of Jesus stands in front of all of us. Announcing, I am the good shepherd. The people celebrated and the leaders mocked. This was unbelievable. It was very surreal, actually. But then this Nazarene began to speak in a parable. He said to them, I truly tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep would not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will go in and come out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. See, this we understood. We got this. We, were, we understood the dynamic of the shepherd with his sheep because we lived in that culture. We were shepherds. The people understood what Jesus was saying. He was saying that he was the senior shepherd, the great shepherd. Because at night, the shepherd would bring the sheep into the sheep pen, the round, circular, high wall, but there was no gate. It was an opening only. And the shepherd would bring the sheep in, then he himself, the senior shepherd, the great shepherd, would lie across the opening. There, he would form a gate with his very own body. A gate that would provide protection from thieves and robbers. A gate that would also guard against the wayward lambs that would wander, want to wander away during the night. Jesus was telling us that, yes, he was the one that Micah, the prophet, had promised. The coming shepherd, the Messiah, who would shepherd the flock of Israel, who would take care of his people, who would lead them in and out, finding good pastures and clean people. And at the same time, he exposed, he exposed, I think, the, the problem that we had in our nation at that time, where religious leaders were more concerned about themselves, their status, their role, their position, than they were about the people of Israel. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I lead them in, I take them out. I watch over, I provide for my sheep. But he wasn't finished there. He purposely began to teach and he continued. The apostle John records this. I am the good shepherd, he said. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hard hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's hard hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The religious leaders were incensed by this. Obviously, Jesus was talking about them as being hard hands that don't care about the sheep. 
But what really impacted me that day is Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Good. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Good. You have to understand, because you read this today, and you think that's wonderful imagery, but let me tell you, that was revolutionary in our time, because I was a shepherd. I grew up with, with the racial profiling that occurred, the vocational profiling that occurred, because we were shepherds. Good was not typically used to describe shepherd. Words that were more commonly used to describe shepherd were thief and cheat and deceptive. You see, when we would come into town to graze our flocks, the people would hide their valuables because the shepherds had come to town. We were viewed with suspicion, and we were viewed with scorn. And so when Jesus said that he was the good shepherd, we're going, what? Hmm, wait a minute. Uh, how how we, he had our attention he gave us this punchline that drew us right in and says, wait, wait, Jesus is saying he's different from everybody else? He's different from the religious? He, he, he's different. He's good and he's kind. I, I don't know that you can understand our bewilderment. Maybe if I give you this illustration, maybe this will work. So tonight when you're seated with your family at the, at the dinner table and you've just begun to eat in the, in the and you've picked up your fork or your spoon, and you've just prepared to take the first bite of your food, and the phone rings at 6.15 tonight. And you look at the call display, and you go, it's a 1-800 number. And you say, wonderful, it's the good telemarketer that's calling me. <laughs> that's how we felt. It didn't fit good and shepherd, or good and telemarketer. But Jesus wasn't finished. The evangelist John records the next words. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not part of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. And the Jews that heard these words, they were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed. He's raving mad. Why are you listening to him? But others said, these are not the words of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So what makes them good? You know, as a lad growing up and experiencing the life and the ministry of the Good Shepherd, there were so many things that made him good. But let me give you just a couple things. First of all, he cared for the people. He cared enough to do something about it. Actually, the same, the same writer, the same apostle, John, who wrote this story, this account of the Good Shepherd, tells us at the end of his gospel that all the things that Jesus did, if they had been recorded and written down, all the good things that the Good Shepherd did, if they had been written down, the earth itself would not be able to contain the books. He was good. He did good things for his people. But also, secondarily, he kept his word. He kept his word. He didn't simply say, he backed up his words with action. He gave his life in exchange for ours. He was and is the good shepherd who did the unimaginable good thing for his sheep. You see, 
Never was such a thing ever heard in Israel, that a shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. We were fond of our sheep. Well, we loved our sheep. That was our livelihood. But there was not a shepherd alive that would die for his sheep. But this good shepherd was willing to lay down his life voluntarily. It was his holy choice. He gave it freely. And the scripture tells us he took it back up again. You see, you see that season that followed, that hard, hard season where the crowds celebrated him one week and the next week they, they jeered him and they called for his crucifixion. He was arrested by the Romans. Mock trial. He was beaten, condemned to death, crucified, scorned publicly, spit upon, his beard plucked. He gave his life for his sheep. And even on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That was good. Not like any shepherd, not like any religious leader we'd ever seen before. He was different. He was good. But it didn't end there. It didn't. You see, after his burial in a borrowed grave, three days later, as he had predicted, he rose from the grave. He rose, and he was seen by his disciples. Matter of fact, the witnesses that verified his resurrection were numerous. The Scripture records that one time, at one moment, more than 500 people saw him alive. 500 at once. You see, there's no question about the validity of the resurrection. The only question is whether you choose to believe or not. He is the good shepherd. He laid down his life. He took it back up again. And the resurrection proved that God had accepted the sacrifice for our sins. And the amazing thing about it is that not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. By the way, the Gentiles, that was what Jesus referred to when he said, I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. He's referring to many of you, Gentile believers, who have chosen to follow him. And the incredible thing is decades later, the same John, the evangelist John the Apostle, as an older man now, Isolated on the Isle of Patmos for, the, for his faith, he had been sent there in exile, working in the salt mines. He would have a revelation, a vision of the end times. He would see a glimpse of heaven. And what he saw, what he saw was amazing. He saw the throne of God, the Lamb of God, seated on the throne, this Lamb that was slain, this good shepherd. And around the throne, and, and on ending worship, were people from every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. His eternal heavenly sheepfold was filled with people that had said yes and decided to follow him. This was amazing. And the scripture records that that one flock was eternally united, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, people from every nation, every language group, anywhere in the world were there. One flock celebrating forever the goodness of the great shepherd, and they never tired of worshiping him. It would go on forever. So what makes him good? Let me step out of the story now as I start to bring this toward a conclusion. You see, it's incredible for us to simply read through the Scripture and not feel it. You see, we've grown up, many of us in church, some of us have, have followed God for, for decades. Some of you are brand new. Some of you are still on the fence trying to decide. Let me tell you, the best decision you will ever make is to say yes to the Good Shepherd and let him lead your life. The best decision you're ever going to make. 
But for some of us who have walked with the Lord for some years, the story gets, we get bored with the story. I hate to say that, but we forget how good God is. His kindness, his goodness, his love. So from Scripture, let me talk a bit about the goodness of God. Simply two verses and then a conclusion. Hebrews chapter 13, first passage, verses 20 to 21, it says this. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What does it mean here? That he, the God of peace, the God who loves us, the God that's not at war with you, the God that doesn't hate you, the God who loves you and loves you even when you were unlovable. Do you know what I mean by that? The scripture says, in this God demonstrates his great love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still rebels, revolting against God's loving leadership, he loved us. That's where he demonstrated his great love. And in this passage, it says, the God of peace who comes to present to us hope through the blood of the eternal covenant. What does that mean? Remember the story. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus gathered in that upper room with his disciples. At the end of the Seder meal, he took the cup. He took the bread. He broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Foreshadowing what was going to happen just hours away, where his body would be broken, where he'd be whipped and beaten and mocked and scorned. And then he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. See, the covenant that God formed with us through Jesus Christ is a covenant of forgiveness, of eternal life. It's a covenant that says God doesn't hate you. God is for you. God loves you. God invites you. He welcomes you into his family through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through the sacrificial work, this great shepherd who laid down his life for us. But it doesn't end there. It wasn't just that he demonstrated his covenant. The resurrection was the proof. Because he rose again from the grave, the scripture tells us, this great shepherd can come and help us today. He's available in this moment, in your moments, in your todays, to equip you, to equip you, to give you everything you need to do what is pleasing for God. God doesn't leave it. He doesn't just birth us into the kingdom and said, see you later. See you in heaven in about 50 years or 60 or 80 years. The God, the good shepherd, has chosen to walk beside you every single day to equip you, to enable you to live this life in a way that pleases him. Isn't that beautiful? He doesn't ignore us. He doesn't leave us. And then he promised to return again. This is in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. This is really good news. The good shepherd is coming back. And the scripture tells us when he comes back, we're going to receive this crown of glory. What does that really mean? Well, I'm not entirely sure. I don't think it's a physical crown. I think it's going to be the glory of God settles around us. I think that in that moment, this life that we have, this flawed humanity, this brokenness that, that encumbers us, you know, the weaknesses that we deal with. The scripture says that we see we're going to be transformed in that moment. We're going to be changed. And somehow this earthly humanity this brokenness, this limitation is shifted and changed in exchange for a, a glory, a crown of glory. God's presence is glory that will never, ever fade. Think about that. That's the promise of God to us. That it, this is not as good as it gets. I have good news for you. The good shepherd has provided for us a life that is incredibly filled with joy. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore. Can you imagine what does fullness of joy look like? I mean, think about your best day. 
and multiply it by about 16 billion. That's what we're talking about. Unspeakable glory that surrounds us. He really is a good shepherd. So, in conclusion, the good shepherd made three significant statements that require a response. When Jesus spoke to the crowds in his day, there was always a response that was demanded. But there are three statements from this text today that I want to present to you. The first one, he said, I am the good shepherd, very clearly. Our response to his claim is, will you accept it or will you reject that statement? Is he your good shepherd? His costly gifts of forgiveness of sin and salvation and eternal life were available to you. Now, most of us in this room have probably said yes to that offer. But if you're here today and you've never actually taken that step and said, Jesus, I know, I know that my life is broken. I know that I have done things for which I am ashamed. I know that I have sinned and fallen short of your perfect purposes for my life. If you can acknowledge that, and if you can believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he loved you so much he died sacrificially, he, he took your punishment so that you can know the pleasure of God. If you believe that is true, if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, and he did that for you, and if you're willing to confess, if you're willing to tell someone else, if you're willing to give testimony of your eternal choice, it says you're saved. And that's all that's required. This transaction is so simple, but it's the most important one you ever make. I am the good shepherd. Number two. And this is where I want to speak to the believers now for a few moments. He says as well, my sheep listen to my voice. My sheep hear my voice. They listen to my voice. But here's the thing that we can gloss over. You know, guys, we're famous for this, gentlemen. Uh, I'll throw all of you and myself under the bus here. How many times has my wife been talking to me? And I have been listening. Sort of, kind of. And my wife can go on for about, you know, whatever, you know, an uh, inordinate amount of time. I won't tell you how long. And, uh, and she'll, she'll look at me with, with my eyes, which apparently have glazed over at this point. And she, she says to me, Steve, are you listening to me? Of course. What do I say? Yes, of course I'm listening. But here's the challenge. She always throws the challenge at me. What did I just say? You see, there's a difference between listening and hearing. There's a the difference between listening and active listening. Listening, you see, this, the word that's used here, the concept that Jesus tries to communicate to us as believers, my sheep listen to my voice. It's listening with the intention to obey. Listening with the intention to obey. It's not just, it's not just this concept of, of, yeah, I, I, okay, great. How many podcasts have you listened to this week? Don't answer that question. How many sermons have you heard in your lifetime? If you're over the age of 15, you've been in church all your life like I have been. I fell asleep as a child under the pew. My parents forgot one of us one time and went home without us. We grew up saturated with the Word of God, but does not mean necessarily that I listened with the intention to obey. You see, we don't, become, uh, we don't become mature followers of Jesus Christ through osmosis. We have to believe what he says, and we have to apply it. So my question for you and for myself, believer, will you give Jesus your unqualified, unreserved yes today? Will you say, Jesus, you have my obedience. I will align my life with your word. 
You see, that's the role of a, of a shepherd as he leads his sheep. He leads us into green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. He knows what's best for us, even when we don't like what he says. You know, yeah, I mean, you've all been teenagers. The kids are all out. One thing that's common about those of us that are young and immature, and those of us that are mature and never intend to grow up, is that we don't like people telling us what to do. And that very heart of independence will keep us from really growing up in our faith. The best place for us would be a, to be the place where we give Jesus our unconditional yes, where we, our heart demonstrates our desire is to please God in everything, and where we decide up front that we, will, that we will obey quickly because delayed obedience, in my opinion, is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. The words of Jesus mark us. They challenge us. The words of the apostles that give us instruction never go out of style. They're not old-fashioned. They're not for another time. They can be applied in our life today. If we want to grow, Scripture says, my sheep listen to my voice. They listen with the intention to obey. I can't make it any softer than that. We have to deal with the words of Jesus. It requires a response from us. The third statement of Jesus from this text is, my sheep follow me. In similar ways to listening to his voice, this concept of following indicates that a surrender of control, a relinquishing of the right that we have to choose our own way. It's, it's like saying, along with Jesus, not my will, but your will be done, Father. But the challenge we have sometimes, maybe the challenge that I have, is I start asking questions like, but what if he leaves me where I don't want to go? Or maybe he'll ask me to do things that are uncomfortable for me. Or, or what if it doesn't feel good in the moment? What if? What if? It's risky. What if it's a bit scary? You might find yourself really grappling with the fact that God, perhaps in your mind, in your thoughts, would never lead you into something that feels uncomfortable. Can I challenge that thought? I think that God will always lead us into things that are uncomfortable. Oh, maybe not always, but usually. Because God will lead us into situations and opportunities where we must depend on his help, where we have to lean in on his grace, where we have to receive his strength. God, at times, will allow us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Those times, let me describe the valley of the shadow of death. It was a, it was a pathway, a roadway from the southern Israel, from Jericho area, up to Jerusalem, and, and the pathway went through a very narrow canyon where there were robbers lurking, lurking in the shadows and behind the boulders. And it was a very dangerous portion of the pathway, the valley of the shadow of death. But the psalmist gives us clue. He says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you know it, I will fear no evil. What's the next line? For you are with me. You are with me. The good shepherd will lead you through the easy times and the difficult times of your life. God is calling you to something higher than your comfort. He's calling you into your destiny. He's calling you into his purposes for your life. And it will most always challenge you because the words of Jesus, they just do that. It's not in my notes. But there was a time about 19 years ago where my wife and I faced one of these challenges. We were in a, we were in a place that was wonderful. We were 
we were helping to plant new churches and we were excited about that season of our life. Uh, and we were up in northern British Columbia and an opportunity came, a call. And the good shepherd said to us, I have something else for you. And it seemed completely out of left field. It wasn't what we had planned for our lives. I had the next five to 10 years pre-planned, planting churches, doing things in northern, northwestern Canada. I had my life organized. And by the way, I like my plan. Do you like your plans? And we got a phone call that changed everything. A phone call that became the call of God. And the president of this denomination said to me, Steve, I'd like you to pray about something. There's a church in Surrey. There's a church in Surrey that's looking for a pastor. And I would like you and Becky to pray about going there. It wasn't my plan, but it was God's. And very quickly, as my wife and I went to Jesus and we said, Lord, we, gave, we have given you our, our own reserved, our own qualified yes. We want to follow you. Did you confirm it? I remember the first Sunday we were here, we came as a visitor and we stood right about over there on the side and Graham Bork was leading worship that day. And we stood there, my wife and I, with the intention of sensing confirmation from the Lord whether we should come to this congregation. It was in the worship as Graham led us in worship. I looked at my wife and she looked at me. Both of us had tears streaming down our face and we knew that God's call was on our life to come to this church. It's the best thing we've ever done. The good shepherd will lead you into green pastures. It's the best decision we've ever made in ministry was to come to this congregation. God will lead you. It wasn't my choice. I have my plans made, but God has the right as good shepherd to interrupt your plans. Do you know that? He reserves the right. And can I say he almost reserves it in a way that he delights in. He delights to give us the desires of our heart, but we think what we really want is something else. Oh my. I will fear no evil because you're walking with me. You see, the response of every true believer is to believe that he is the good shepherd. But that we have to resolve to seek him first, to daily pray for wisdom and guidance and instruction, to surrender to his plans, his capable hands. See, the temptation that every one of us face is to shepherd our own lives to think that we know better than him. But God's heart for every one of us is that we would resolve to seek him first. First. And give him the first choice. One of my favorite quotes is this. That God always gives the best to those who leave the choice to him. That's been my testimony. He's been faithful all these years of my life. We must accept him as good shepherd. We must listen with the intention to obey. We must follow him with a surrendered heart. See, Jesus is not looking for likes on Facebook. He's looking for people to lead. He's not looking for fans. He's looking for followers. And this morning, what I like to do is we 
as we move to a close is simply to invite you as I invite myself to a fresh commitment, a full surrender to his lordship, where you hand your future fully into God's hands, where you choose to ask him and seek him first so that he's the first person we go to for advice or when we are making prayerful decisions, not the last person we go to after we tried it our own way and it didn't work, but we go to him first. When we need guidance, we don't go to Google or friends. We go to God. We need to repent. Can we ask God for help today? I'm going to have the worship team just pray and I'm, or play behind me for just a moment. And just, I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to our hearts. Because I think God wants you to do a transaction with Him today. He wants to move you from being a fan to being a follower today. My God, my God, we respond to your word that said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep listen to me. My sheep follow me. And Lord, I'm asking that you would move across this place today in a gentle move of your spirit. Would you tug on our hearts, Lord? We repent of those times where we didn't go to you first and we didn't put you in first place. When we tried to lead instead of following. Oh God, where we have plans for our future rather than surrendering our future into your hands. Jesus, would you come now? Would you realign our hearts? Help us, Lord, to respond to your gentle invitation. I am the good shepherd.